Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to the last Software Gone Wild in 2019. We decided to conclude the year with another overview of how far Linux networking had come in the recent years. And you might remember that there is this conference called NetDev that is run approximately annually. And we covered the previous one in late 2018. So it was obviously time for a new podcast on the same topic. Like always, Jamal, who was on our podcast before, brought a number of other interesting speakers. And to make things simple, I would just ask all of you to introduce yourselves in alphabetical order, plus mention one topic you would love to discuss, and then we'll just go from there. Hi, Ivan. Uh, my name is Jamal Hadi Salim. I am uh, part of the NetDev Society. The two other board members are here as well. Two other board members, the third one is not here. We organize this conference every year. I'm also, during the daytime, doubling on what is known as SDN to this day, although I've moved up the food chain into applications above SDN. So what are you doing in the SDN space? We have an SDN infrastructure based on forces, uh, which is an ITF standard. Above it, we do a lot of applications ranging from telemetry to anything that will probably squeak or run in the Linux kernel as a distributed control plane. And now, of course, you know I have to ask the question. Why forces and not OpenFlow? Because forces is way better, technically. Okay, so I thought you would say because it works, but yeah, let's stop there. It works. What's the topic you would like to discuss today? So I picked a talk that is probably the one I enjoyed the most. And I'm being, uh, I wish there was more time because I'll probably pick 15 other talks. This one was given by Melanox on... Uh, how they extended Catran with three or four lines of code to make it scale better. Okay, we'll get there. And uh, let's move on to Shrijit. Hi, my name is Shrijit. I guess I've been around Linux and networking for over 20 years. I uh, did a bunch of, I actually built one of the world's first Linux graphics workstations. But since then, I built what uh, was a forerunner to what we would call a smartnik today, which is called UTS. In fact, uh, I mean, we talked in that context at that point as well. And when we introduced virtual switching offload in, in an ASIC in that product. So that was the Palo chipset? That was the Palo chipset. That's right. You did a great job there. Uh, we thought the product was way ahead of its time. And I guess the product, that idea and all the concepts in that product are now making a big comeback in the smart tech business. Yeah, the product was great. It was only that it was marketed by Cisco. <laughs> Yeah, there were some economic reasons for that. The thing that I've done since, and actually, I mean, you and know, I've crossed paths a little bit there as well, since we talked to Dinesh, that's all the time. I was the VP engineering of a company called Cumulus Networks. And what we did was we brought Linux networking to the fabric, to the core switches, the routers, and the world of uh, SDK-managed switching ASICs and sort of connected the dots, if you will, in the context of networking, because networking at the end, you know, is all about connecting things. And when you connect things, you need to have some guarantees, some assumptions about who you're talking to and what model they're going to be able to implement. 
if you look at networking, right, or specifically Linux networking, you see that there's a continuum from the host, the endpoint, to a virtual network, to a physical network, and of course, to the other end, all the way to the other endpoint. And if all of those were modeled around Linux and around a well-understood ecosystem, I believe, and I assert very strongly, that uh, everybody wins, that the, the velocity, the innovation, and the ability to bring new ideas to the table is well served. And Cumulus was sort of the next step in that evolution. And uh, if you look at uh, what we are trying to do here, right, with this conference, with the NetDev Society and the NetDev Conference, it's sort of a, a breeding ground, an area where we want to bring such ideas to the table, let people come in and say how their context and how their concepts fit in with everybody else. Okay, now that you went down this path, I have to ask you this question that was sort of always nagging at me. Isn't there a danger of monoculture where everyone is sharing, for example, the same kernel box? There absolutely is. I think it is very dangerous to not acknowledge what you, the, the point you're making. That said, the only way you fix that problem is by being completely transparent, by giving people the option to express their ideas and express the diversity of thought, to let people come in and say, look, I don't agree with the way you're solving this problem. I have an alternative option. And if your solution runs into trouble, then deploy mine. It still doesn't address the sort of the day zero problem that you're talking about, right? Like if I've deployed, everybody agreed, hands were held and uh, thoughts were agreed on and you deployed and there was a bug, the risk of there being widespread problems is absolutely real and absolutely true. However, as I said, the only way you fix that is transparency. I think it wouldn't be a good plan to say your idea is good, your implementation is good, but because of monoculturism, I will refuse to acknowledge yeah, well, just keep in mind that transparency didn't help open SSL, right? <laughs> yes. I, I mean, it's true. I don't really have a good counter to that. Okay, moving on. So, Mini, welcome. First time on this podcast, I'm guessing? Yes. So, what are you doing in real life? My connection with NetDev is that last year I was the chair of the program committee for NetDev 13, Xerox 1.3. I was also chairing the TCP analytics workshop and my history in Linux has been, I've been doing a number of Linux things in various companies. I'm right now in Microsoft in the Azure networking group. But before that, I was in Oracle, both in the Linux group and their database group. Before that, Cisco. And what seems like a different life, I was in Sun at one point, right? So I've seen Linux evolve through the years. And uh, what topic would you bring to the table today? What was your favorite talk? I think that it's not a single talk because there were a number of talks around it. But what I think was very interesting to me from the point of view of an end system, someone who does things on the server side is the stuff around analytics. We had a TCP analytics workshop and a number of people from Akamai, Google, Facebook presented. The challenge there is you have a lot of data. These are, in, in this case, it was TCP flows. And you want to monitor them from your SDN application and user space. And how do you do this in an efficient way? You have to draw the balance between getting the right statistics and at the same time not being the problem yourself because you're collecting statistics. So there are a lot of good answers and there are, each one has some deficiencies. So that discussion was actually very interesting to me. So it almost sounds like quantum mechanics, right? Um, to an extent. I mean, by measurements, you perturb the experiment and then you get different results. <laughs> 
This is the Hessenberg answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, exactly. Yes. There is some of that, and there is also the uh, statistics issue of it. Like, you have to collect the right sample and draw the right conclusions from that sample, right? It's easy to make the wrong conclusions, so that sort of thing. And the interesting solutions that came out were things around eBPF. So, I think that everyone agreed that the easiest way, to, the most efficient way to do this was to use, was to go around the eBPF path, but eBPF is hard to use. So we were, there were a lot of discussions around making that a little bit more accessible to SDN applications. So with the eBPF path, you would effectively insert a tap sort of in between the TCP stack and the NIC, right? So Facebook has done a lot of work around this, right? What they have done is Lawrence Brackmore has added TCP BPF hooks. So you can add that. You would actually have to change your kernel. It's not like you can just use it on an older kernel, but you have to add hooks that and then you can insert a kernel module, and that kernel module will monitor the flows. And if it has enough data, you can write the kernel module as you like from user space so that it sends messages back to you at the interesting points. Or you can do everything in the kernel. So it's actually very efficient in that sense. Right? You basically insert yourself in the kernel path and monitor things as a kernel module. Nice. Yes. And finally, Tom, welcome back. I think you were on this podcast once or twice in the past. Yes. I hope you're no longer dealing with that interesting IPv6 idea. So what are you doing these days? So currently I'm at Intel. I'm looking still at networking with a little more focus on network acceleration and offload. And I do like to tie that into the higher layer goals. So for instance, uh, the IPv6 aspects that you're referring to actually do tie in because we want any solution, say with IPv6 or other solutions to work seamlessly and, and have high performance. So it's important to tie in the protocol definition with how you're implementing it. So they're kind of tied together in that respect. So if I remember that idea, you effectively had to do sort of address translation between inner addresses, let's say, of the containers and the actual physical addresses on the wire. So are you saying that you can do that now in a NIC? Yes. It turns out that's actually easier to do on a NIC than, say, tunnel encapsulation. It's really just swapping out 64 bits of an address. So it uh, can be done highly efficiently. And like I said, I think the direction that I think the industry is going overall, and you know, going back to uh, some of my favorite talks at uh, last NetDev, I really did like uh, Alyssa Cooper, our keynote speaker, uh, she's chair of IETF and gave a really interesting description of kind of how IETF process works and how the Linux community might get involved. And the reason I think this is important is because we need to move forward on the internet and involve it. We have to consider both the protocols, the applications, as well as the implementation. So when I look at things like bringing up 5G with AR, VR, remote surgery, some of the crazy ideas that they're coming up with smart cities. A lot of these are going to re require really performant networking with strict uh, latency bounds, high bandwidth, lots of users. And the effect of that is that everything in the ecosystem becomes important. So we have to think in terms of we're building an end-to-end -end solution, for instance, for to connect automobiles with servers at some back-end data center or edge data center. And the point there is we have to consider now everything in that path. So Linux is, is obviously critical because it's running on several of those devices, but we have protocols, we have hardware. 
how do all of these work together seamlessly in order to really address the this kind of new world of emergent applications, very um, intense, very low latency. Okay, so I can be a bit sarcastic. So ITF realized the quality of implementation matters. That's interesting. That's what we're working on. It's kind of an interesting situation because for a long time, there was a dominant player, um, mostly Cisco and IETF, and the routing world had a lot of domination. And we were trying to undo that, I think, to a large extent, some of the work uh, we did at Google and Facebook, taking more of the host perspective to IETF helped a lot. Quick, for instance, was very disruptive. It actually forced us to consider there may be another transport protocol than TCP on the network. So that in the long run has, has good effects. But you have to understand we're working with something that's extremely successful. And it's easy to become a victim of its own success because once it's successful, it's very hard to change, hard to evolve. So we're really dealing with a lot of these sort of growing pains in IETF today. And one of um, Alyssa's points was something called ossification of the internet, which means that basically the way things have been deployed, the way some devices have interpreted protocols, the implementations are kind of fixed such that if we introduce something new to this mix, say a new protocol, it's really hard to make that work at scale to the extent that there are some things like IP fragmentation that people are basically advising against. So my opinion is we need to move forward. If we allow segmentation on the internet such that we can't do new things, then there's no more evolution. And then all these great applications that are coming along, it's going to be harder and harder to support them. Yeah, and I see another problem related to this, which is the ossification of mindsets. People just can't think outside of what they have been doing for the last 30 years. That's the essence of the problem. But like I said, there are ways to change that. So when Quick came along, all of a sudden the network operators have to deal with something other than TCP. And even better, Quick by default encrypts the whole packet, basically the transport layer and the data. And the network operators don't like that because they can no longer peek into the packets. And as you said, they've been using this information for the past 30 years to optimize users' traffic. Now they can't. So they're obviously unhappy with that. However, from a user perspective, which host-based companies are coming from, the possibilities of increased security and privacy In a sense, that's a no-brainer. So we do need more encryption on the internet. We do know that this causes some indigestion with the network operators, but that's not the end of the story. How can we move forward? How can we come up with solutions that satisfy the requirements, of, say, the network operators and the host and the user, figure out how to satisfy all of those? So there are some proposals along these lines, but in the end of the day, it's an evolving story, and the problems we have today Hopefully those will be solved. Uh, IETF timeframes are pretty long, but nevertheless, we'll continue to work on these problems. I, I think it's solvable, but nothing happens overnight. So I wanted to add a point to your point, Tom, which is I think there is definitely some cynicism and some protectionism, if you will, in the old way of doing things and the ossification points that both you and I have made. I think there's also maybe a more positive way to think about it, right? Which is if you're going to make a change into a networking technology, which typically has a pretty large blast radius, you have to be able to demonstrate the value in a very clear and appreciable way. And 
that's actually one of the areas where Linux and Linux networking becomes a huge tool because if you're a, let's say you're a telco and you want to say, you want to be able to understand the impact of deploying something like Quick, where you're going to give up your ability to do fine-grained steering. You have to be able to demonstrate an end-to-end system. You have to be able to evaluate an end-to-end system. And if your end-to-end system involves six vendors, nine protocols, and 18 different CLIs, you'll never get there. You'll never get to the point where you'll be able to demonstrate, like, doing it this way has value, not doing it this way detracts from value. And I think that's one of the areas where Linux networking should be needs to be a major weapon, a major tool to moving the industry forward and breaking the ossification, if you will. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Linux is now the reference OS in the world. Also, even in IETF, it's considered a reference open source implementation. That helps a lot. We do want to avoid the monoculturism we talked about before. But nevertheless, I think uh, the way I would phrase Linux in this world is that it's, it's the leader or leading because of its position. It doesn't own all the problems. And we do want to lead by example, which means in Linux, we want to make sure that that's continuing to evolve, that we're not, we're not stagnating, but we're still producing high quality implementation. And for the most part, we're still following conventions and, and remaining uh, protocol conformant, things like that. Yeah, the important part really is, as you said, that we all play by the same rules. Because, you know, when someone just starts saying, well, source is king and uh, my code runs and I don't care about anything else, I start getting nervous, honestly. (laughs) That is a valid point. Source may not be everything. I mean, that was probably the good starting point for Linux, but I think community consensus is a big role in this. That's why we have this conference. Now that we're back to the conference, Jamal, you wanted to share a few numbers with us, right? Right. So I just wanted to describe the uh, attendance on what happened at Prague. Uh, There were about 250 people attending from 32 countries. We had a total of 78 presentations, 32 hours of recorded uh, videos. The sessions are broken day one into educational uh, phase where, you know, tutorials are given. There was a tutorial on, uh, for example, XDP. There was a tutorial on how CNI interacts with Linux. There's eight workshops uh, that happened here. Workshops are essentially equivalent almost to ITF working groups, contributors to different subsystems of the kernel. And now, for the second time, we have the FRR folks also. So the dev part of NetDev includes user space. It's not just kernel that uh, had their own workshop there. We had a keynote that Tom described. We had an industry perspective where we bring, this was the first time we held it, where we brought people from three different types of industries that were giving perspectives to the community and getting feedback from the community. This format is going to change in Vancouver, but we can talk about that at the end, sake of saving time. And Shrijit, you said when we preparing for the podcast that there was this huge pressure that there were just too many interesting ideas and papers so that you couldn't get everything in, right? Right. In the context of conferences, uh, NetDev is an interesting conference because it's sort of an amalgam of ideas. It's not very focused on a vendor's infrastructure. It's not focused on user space versus kernel. In fact, this time, we, in addition to all the stats from Jamal, we also had papers from the academia. We actually had ideas that were brought in such that they would foster, they would trigger some more development or some more ideas about what can be improved in the kernel itself. 
And we had so many papers and so much interest, we actually had to extend and squeeze both time and space in this conference to, uh, to accommodate more. And even then we had to say no to some people, which is a very encouraging trend, because if you look generally in conferences, and specifically since we use this uh, sort of principle that we don't like recycled material, we reject material that has been you know, trotted out a few times before, it's very encouraging to see new ideas coming up and having an, an overflow or overabundance of ideas as opposed to, no, no, it's the same four things that we've heard about for the last three years. It's very encouraging to me. One thing we've been doing is running at a conference the week before IETF. So we're actually getting quite a few IETFers coming to the conference and they're bringing different ideas as uh, Trujit mentioned. Uh, we had one last conference that was trying to reassign some portion of the IPv4 space to capture it so that we have uh, this address block was unused. And we just wanted uh, somebody wanted to define that as being used. And they presented this both at uh, NetDev and IETF. Uh, so we're getting that sort of cross-pollination with the rest of the industry also. Okay, now that you opened this can of worms that no one else wanted to touch, one of the ideas that I've heard was that let's change 127-8, which is reserved, into 127-24 and use the rest of 127 class A network for regular addressing. Is that the idea you were talking about or was it some other address range? I think it was another address range that was reserved. Uh, the 127-8, that's going to be really hard to change that's loop back so that's pretty much fixed yeah i know <laughs> i think he, he was taking some multicast stuff as well right so might have to i've heard three ideas so far one was uh, let's change multicast into unicast the other one was uh, let's take network zero why should we waste the whole class a for the default route and the third one was, let's take parts of the loopback address space. But in any case, why would anyone in 2019 want to have more dubious IPv4 addresses? What's the reasoning? I think his argument was IPv6. They brought this idea back to the ITF about a decade or more back. Say, so, hey, we need to extend v4. And uh, they were shot down. And they said, well, we gave you 10 years. You're still not ubiquitous on the network, on the internet, right? So we're back with this. It's a long-going story. IPv6 has been kind of uh, trying to come up for, what, 25 years. And we get all kinds of proposals to kind of continue IPv4. NAT, obviously, was probably the, the biggest proposal and definitely extend the lifetime of IPv4. But we're also seeing some other interesting things. There was a thing called IPv10 proposed on IETF, which would have created some sort of combination of IPv4 and IPv6. And it was shot down pretty quickly, but nevertheless, there's a lot of people out there trying to solve problems. So we see problems. There may be use cases for all of these things. It's hard to say that we're all moving in lockstep. As we've already mentioned, there's different parts of the industry that moving at different speeds. For instance, some people in the IETF, they claim IPv6 is the IP protocol. And attempts to even improve IPv4 at this time should not be allowed. And there's other arguments more pragmatic. We have large networks that are still on IPv4. If we can help them, it's pragmatic. They're not going to immediately switch to IPv6. So 
I would say it's kind of a mess, but it's just not unexpected. Again, this is kind of the internet is a victim of its own success. It's really hard to make this sort of broad changes, and, and we've learned a lot with IPv6. The good news is that it is kind of now finally gaining traction. I think we're hitting 30 or 40 percent, according to some of the Google statistics. And if that trend continues at some point in the not too distant future, we'll hit the 50 percent threshold, at least on the Internet. So there, there's a lot of good signs about this. But don't expect that people won't, try, won't continue to make these sort of proposals. And we want them to continue to do that, too. Right. So no one owns the Internet, for instance. And I think we should always be willing to at least listen to such proposals. And I think the fine point to put here is what I was saying, right? The proposal in this talk was that it's a set of small set of patches in Linux, which could put any of these ideas into play. The important part is the community needs to agree. There needs to be a visible and global agreement that this is a problem worth solving. And if the answer becomes yes, then the vehicle way to deploy it becomes obvious. Yes, this is a lot better than just going and doing it um, and not telling anyone and then uh, getting it deployed and saying, oh, it's deployed, so now we can't change it, and therefore it's a de facto standard. So we, we see that a lot. That's really what I think we want to avoid is not doing things in the community, doing not doing things with visibility, and then we get stuck with ossification. That's the worst-case scenario. Let's just wrap up this topic. I understand the reasoning. The problem I'm seeing is that if you want to make this work outside of a monoculture environment, for example, in overlay virtual networks or something along those lines, then you have to modify all the legacy devices out there so that they understand that we are talking about a new definition of unicast addresses. And I just don't see this happening anytime soon. Let's move on. The next topic we want to address was the interesting use of smart NICs to prevent denial of service attacks, right, Jamal? So this was my topic, yeah. The reason I picked this talk that was given by Ronnie Ephraim and Amir Ansel, I hope I pronounced the name right, there was many other authors, was because it depicted how to best, uh, I think we'll see this a lot more of this in the Linux world. First of all, it shows how to use existing Linux APIs. It showed how to use XDP to add custom extensions, which is what XDP, uh, which what the Catran uh, load balancer does from Facebook. And with just a few basic changes on the code that uh, the Catran code, which is open source, I think it was three to four lines. This gentleman managed to show utilization of the current Linux API with no kernel changes required and an extension to accelerate when you have a SmartNIC in the presence of SmartNIC the user application, in this case, Catron, right? So I believe we'll, I got excited about it because I think we'll see a lot more this kind of use cases going forward. So effectively, they were offloading the packet processing from the kernel space, let's say BPF or something, into the SmartNIC. Yes, that's what they did, but with a very small change to the existing application. Application is running eBPF, slash XDP in the cup. Now, obviously, the problem is that it's hard to do the same thing on multiple NICs from multiple vendors. So are we at a point where the interface toward the NIC driver is standardized enough so that if I have two compliant NICs, I can just swap them and the other one works as well? 
So there are two things that happen here. One is they use existing APIs for the kernel, no changes. Okay, so they use TC to do the offloading of the rules, watching the rules, and they'll offload some rules. And the performance went up like 50% just by virtue of doing that. And there is something I think that's still being uh, standardized. Tom can speak to that. It's the way you tell the NIC. This is the metadata exchange between XDP and the hardware accelerator in the NIC. That is being worked on right now. Tom is here in the forefront. Uh, so, yes, this is going to be, a, I think, a major topic going forward. And we'll probably have several talks in a workshop on the particular topic of this. I call it more advanced acceleration. As you mentioned, Ivan, there's a fundamental problem that we have multiple vendors that support uh, different implementations. The obvious goal is that we want to be able to accelerate and offload uh, functionalities like, like Catran or like Mellanux deal with Catran. So we need common APIs to do this. And this is not a trivial problem because we're trying to have a common API and it has to be very rich and featureful to try to capture all the different possibilities. And yet also it has to be somehow restricted because if we require, for instance, that every piece of hardware supports a very rich and broad API, it's kind of impossible. So there's going to be limitations to it. And one of the major problems in the area actually that we're, we've identified is how do you even know what the hardware can do? How does the hardware say or, or convey what it can do? How does the software match what it's trying to do with what the hardware can do? What happens if there's a mismatch? So these are, um, I think, very much the emerging problems and uh, definitely on the horizon. And we'll be doing a, a lot of work in this area, I'm predicting. It sort of feels like you guys are opening the same set of uh, cans of worms that people like SIP developers and OpenFlow developers and EVPN developers were dealing with in the past. So I can only hope that you will end up with better results. So since you opened this can of worms, so I think there is a difference, right? I think OpenFlow, if you look at OpenFlow or SIP as examples, actually for that matter, EVPN as well. I mean, we looked at all of these very deeply in Cumulus. The one issue with OpenFlow, for example, was it was just a protocol with a transport. It didn't have a model, it didn't have a reference, and it didn't have the well-understood layering of a standard operating system, user space, driver infrastructure. And I think where Linux can help and where something like XDP, EVPF really helps is it uses the kernel and the kernel data plane and the kernel model as the backdrop. That's the reference. From then on, the problem reduces to how do I integrate different implementations, which is no different from a device driver layer for anything, right? Whether it's USB or graphics or whatever else. So this isn't a unique problem in that context. And once you have a well-defined driver interface, then what you have to do is get enough volume, get enough weight in your solution that vendors will comply. To. And I think if we can go solve that problem, if we can say that, look, use Linux as a reference, be innovative in the way you implement your hardware, but integrate the hardware to a common interface of the kind that Tom is talking about, then we solve this problem in a systematic way. If you try to say this layer or this interface or this implementation is the cornerstone, is the key piece, then it gets a lot harder, which is what I think happened with the examples you were using. Well, the problem I have with all those three examples is that, you know, you had this rich functionality, but everything was optional. 
So getting two implementations to work together was always an interesting exercise in trying to find the least common denominator. Exactly. And on the other hand, people that were trying to develop open flow controllers effectively gave up because every switch was presenting a different forwarding model. So, you know, you had to recode the same thing for every single, not just ASIC, but particular software implementation on that same ASIC. Having the problem that Srijit touched on is there was no modeling from day one. You know, it's just a hack. I'm going to keep adding RPCs. And every time I want to add a new feature in the hardware, I have to change the protocol. I would say it a little more precisely, right? Like if you look at a network that is run with OpenFlow, right? The network model is defined by the controller and the endpoints, which means two different implementations shared nothing from a model perspective. They shared the transport, but the surrounding infrastructure was unique. Whereas if you do what, for example, what Cumulus did, you say the networking model is Linux. The implementation differences are reduced to the driver interface. What you have to do is that the models have to be coherent, right? You cannot have a second implementation that does not match. And if you do that, I think I assert the solution is a lot more tractable and interoperability is enforced at a much, much more finer grain than just having a transport that is shared. Along those lines, if you look at the offloads that have been successful or ubiquitous, there's actually very, very few of them. Checksum offload, TSO, RSS, those are kind of the three most basic offloads. They're supported by all Nix and supported by all OSs and well-supported in Linux. The reason they're successful is because they were simple, well-defined, and they, they followed the model that Shujit uh, alludes to. So I think the way to move forward in this area is not to be too ambitious from the get-go. So OpenFlow is this whole model and architecture required hardware support. We're actually starting from what are the little things, what's the low-hanging fruit? And the Katran example that uh, Mellanox did is just a great example. What they actually did was very simple, but very powerful. And I think those are the sort of things I want to start with. Uh, attack the low-hanging fruit and evolve this. We're not going to be able to offload full eBPF programs um, in your time, but one before. There are TC extensions that have been offloaded that have been very successful, and Mellanox used them very effectively. Not just uh, GRO or, or checksums, but also, in this case, they use an accept, an ACO, for example, a drop, a redirect, a mirror. There are few, but to build on Shijit's uh, point, the reason this worked is because it was a singular API, not a babble of APIs from 16 different vendors SDK, and that singular API was Linux. I mentioned earlier, the application was changed. At three more lines or four more lines of code were added to Katran, and it worked, right? So what you're saying is the difference between those attempts and this one is that here you started with a well-defined API. That is how this works, but uh, it may not be sufficient if we want to add more features. Okay, now that we got into all this offload debate, let's move to Sumini's topic. Because effectively, TCP application performance measurement also requires offloading of things from, you know, the TCP stack to the user space where you do the analytics. Did I get that approximately right, Sumini? So the offload direction you're thinking of is not the way we traditionally think of offload, right? We think of offloading things from higher levels in the stack to lower levels. So from software to hardware, for example. I knew I would get it wrong. So 
fix me. <laughs> from going from the kernel to user space is usually like an up call, and that's usually like hairy, to put it nicely. So when you do that, user space can get swapped out. User space can, you have less control. The kernel has much more control over timing and things. So that's not what we, it, it gets slower, less efficient. So what we want to do here is we want the kernel to efficiently monitor statistics and take samples at interesting points and then evaluate that to monitor the flow and use that to make SDN decisions. Okay, so let's start with that. What problem are you trying to solve? Why are you monitoring the TCP performance? So, for example, if you wanted to do things like graphic engineering or you wanted to say, okay, I have multiple paths and one of these paths is getting overloaded. I want to do some flow balancing, things like that. So for that, you would need to know the congestion state. You would need to know other things that were happening for specific TCP flows. Or even like what would happen in Oracle was that customers would call and say, my database sucks. So basically what they were saying is they, they don't know that whether it's a database application bottleneck or whether it's a network bottleneck. And a lot of the time we would spend many hours looking at it and then we find out, oh yes, that's because your network router has some configuration that is throttling you down. We have no control over that. It's not the application. And in some cases, it would be the application. So to identify things like that, you would need to have TCP analytics statistics. Right? That, that was one use case. That was even before SDN, actually. In the case of SDN, you could use that information to actually reroute your flows or rethink your uh, application algorithm to route around some of those bottlenecks. So to recap, instead of guessing what the state of the network is, you look at the producer of the data and how well the TCP sessions are doing, and then you know exactly how the network is performing. So you're no longer guessing. Exactly. In some database use cases, what happens is that you have this HA solution, you have a primary and a backup, and you want the two of them to be in sync. And so the state of the network is very important because these are going over uh, long internet paths. And if there's congestion, the state will not be in sync. And if the primary fails, the backup will not take over smoothly. There will be a hiccup. So you don't want that. Yeah, we've heard about large web properties that ran into this problem. Right. But since we are talking about web properties, we are talking about millions of flows. So how do you collect analytics? How do you then process them? How does this whole thing work at scale? So this is actually the crux of the problem, right? And Jamal and I have spent many hours talking about this, and we'd also discussed this in the workshop. You have millions of flows, and sometimes the flows are just like ping flows, like they're basically sending traffic just to see if the connection is alive. So basically, they are doing exactly the perturbance that you mentioned at the beginning, which is in an attempt to find out if the network is alive, they are slowing the network down. We don't want to collect data for those flows. What we want is for the interesting flows, and for that, Something like eBPF is actually very useful because you can specify the flow, the four-tuple precisely and only collect data for that flow instead of just collecting everything in the kitchen sink and then picking out the ones that you want. It's actually even more precise than that, right? I mean, the issue is it's not just about the round trip. Sometimes you want to know if you're waiting for scheduling. You want to know if you're waiting for the act. If, where yes. is the problem? What's the bottleneck? There was like, for example, the paper that Sohel and Yuchung presented where they have instrumented the TCP uh, or add, actually added timestamping to all the TCP states, which again could also be implemented via eBPF as well. And knowing that distinction, right, knowing if a whole bunch of your threads are waiting for acts to come back, thus it's not a scheduling problem on your end, it's a scheduling problem on the far end, versus the other way around is very important. 
Well, that's typically more important when you talk about the millions of flows and really wide web property. Right, that's a very good point. And also with new congestion algorithms coming and so on, right, you can even use this to uh, adjust, to adapt to your specific congestion algorithm. And I think there were some papers that were actually presented about using TCP VPF to even add TCP options without requiring changes from upper levels in the stack. So there's a lot of interesting possibilities here. But from my particular point of view, the first thing that I found attractive about eBPF is the flexibility of the filters you can add in terms of what samples you want to collect. And it has all these other benefits in, as well because it sits in the kernel directly. So from the functionality perspective, this sounds more like NetFlow than packet sampling like SFlow, right? Better than that, right? Because you have access to the kernel where all these flows source or terminate, right? As opposed to your sampling packets on the wire and then or the other tricks which people use would be to redirect packets to mirror packets to some port. And then you have this massive cluster to analyze TCP flows or to do net flow. You have it from the source. So you can collect a lot of a lot more interesting statistics or analytics. I think there are different solutions to different things, right? I think as NetFlow as flow typically is run out of a switch where you're talking about terabits or multi-terabits of cross. And we won't have the CPU to do the flexible filtering in that context. I think where the two lines should meet is if you could load things like eBPF into an S-Flow sort of configurable filter model, that's where you get the sort of the best of both worlds, right? Where you can say, not just a pure statistical thing like S-Flow does. You can do a more intelligent, selective picking of information and send it to where you want to send it if you're putting it in the core of your fabric. On the other hand, if you're doing things like TCP or state-oriented things, eBPF is incredibly powerful and, and effective because you're doing it on a relatively small scale, small number of flows, small number of ports, relatively, of course. And you can collect the data, add the granularity and add the flexibility that you want, and then accumulate over your entire fabric. Another angle here, currently there's a lot of work being done to do in-band telemetry, in-band um, OAM. So there's at least two proposals I know of, uh, IOAM and INT. And the idea is that a source will send a packet, and as a packet goes through the network, it's annotated with data. So, for instance, intermediate nodes can indicate their current queue occupancy or the latency to go through a router. And at the end, potentially, all this information is in the packet, so the end node syncs it and then can take that data and now knows what happened to individual packets as they traverse the network. And obviously, we would collect that data and eventually rectify that with TCP statistics and hopefully get a really good picture of what is happening on a per-flow basis. And then I think um, inevitably what will happen is that we'll just produce a lot of data. People will run that through AI and machine learning algorithms, and we should have a lot more insights into the network and then algorithms to actually optimize based on those inputs and, and make decisions. And no podcast would be complete without mentioning AI and machine learning. That's what I was figuring. Now, on a more practical side, this all sounds exciting, but if I'm a typical networking engineer or a typical sysadmin not working for Facebook or Google or Microsoft or one of the big guys, how relevant is this to me? I'll let Shujit respond to this, but I say it's relevant. 
for example, day one where we have tutorials on how these interfaces that network engineers would use, the DevOps uh, type of tutorials, where the ops, I, I believe, is what you're calling network engineers here. Yeah. But Shrijit maybe can expand a little because he delves into this every I think your question is very spot on, Ivan. I think the function of how well and how quickly commercial operations, say including Cisco's and the Aristas, but clearly the Cumulus of the Red Hats, the Ubuntu's of the world, package this technology and provide it in a way that you don't have to understand how and what it does under the hood is the key factor. And the thing, the good thing about Linux, right? I mean, we've, we've seen this with EVPN. EVPN is broadly deployed in the Linux or broadly implemented in the Linux kernel and is now getting broad deployment as well. And people don't understand or care about the fact that it's a Linux implementation versus any proprietary implementation from a vendor. And that's the sort of, that's the yardstick. The moment you have packaged solutions, that's when you get the best of both worlds. The implementation is transparent, it's moving fast, but the external use case is sort of coherent with what the typical network engineer is familiar with and they don't have to break their head trying to implement it or install it. I said EVPN, what I meant to say was VXLAN. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, companies, startups especially, that are into analytics of various forms. I know of one that was doing precisely what can we get out of Linux and then running analytics over that. So I think to answer that question, it really is about the packaging. So uh, people can buy off the self-shelf solutions that can optimize their network and identify faults. That's going to be that's that's really big, even in these small networks. I think it's critical. One point I'd like to add is that uh, anecdotally, there is like people from my ATF have told me that they like coming to the net dev because while they are more in an architectural position, this gives them an idea of what you can and cannot do in terms of implementation and what's going on out there. And even for myself, right, I go there and I get exposure to protocols like Quick and stuff. I don't have the time to go and read up every RFC, but it's nice to go there and get the Quick tour so I can focus on things that are relevant to my job role. Even things like Quagga and other things that, you know, that extend my breadth of knowledge in addition to that. Now I have to correct you. Quagga is the bad word. FRR is the new word to use. <laughs> yeah, sure. That I'm dating myself when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't say Zebra. That's okay. <laughs> I think that the application is still called Quagga, right? And it's inside FRR. Don't they change the names of the binaries? The route daemon is Zebra. Quagga was the routing protocol daemon. Zebra is the rip to fib converter. Exactly. There's like five processes or something. And I, have they moved to threads yet or are they still doing processes? <laughs> no, in fact, that was one of the papers that they talked about where Zebra has now got this asynchronous data plane, but it's still the micro thread. Okay. Anyway, coming back to the conference itself. So you're saying it's not just for the developers who are dealing with the intricacies of the APIs and things like that, but that also, let's say, an end user like a network architect could benefit by going there just so that he could see what might be available in, let's say, three to five years. Yes, absolutely. Interesting thing you may not know about, right? Like a lot of people don't know about the TCP repair and other like complex features which they could use if they knew that it was available to them. So getting exposure to these things in a, in a conference is a much faster way to get it than to read Linux journals, which you may not have the time for. And if I am at a point where I'm like, yeah, maybe it would be interesting to go there, when is the next conference and where is it and how do I get there? 
So March 17th to 20th, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see the screen in front of me, but it's in Vancouver, Canada. It will be a few days before the ITF. Uh, it will end on a Friday and the ITF starts uh, on, on a Saturday, at least they, parts of it begin on Saturday. We have extended it, right? We took feedback from Prague. We did a survey and instead of three days, we're going to make it four days. And the reason for that is a lot of people say there was all these interesting talks. They were back to back, squeezed. I am just running between talks. And we want to discuss with the speaker or with, or with people of common interest. So we are opening up a lot of breakout rooms for discussion. So we have four to five breakout rooms starting day two onwards. So we'll have talks. We haven't decided when the breakouts will be followed by hours by time where breakouts people get together and discuss and you can those rooms are booked on at the conference based on what people want to talk about so if you listen you hear talk you can show up and approach the speaker or speakers and say let's get together we'll whiteboard things we'll discuss so we can see what the next move is in regarding to what you're talking about or it could be just an interesting off and it's a fully open conference so the only thing i have to do is to register All you have to do is register. This call for sessions is open right now. It's going to close on the 15th of January. We're still looking for sponsors. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to ask for sponsorship, but... Of course you are. Please uh, sponsor us. We are totally volunteer-driven. This is a conference for engineers by engineers. So any engineer will enjoy this, regardless uh, of... The sponsorship amounts will blow you away if you're used to standard commercial conferences. We like to just break even so that we can bring this conference to the masses. Okay, so let's wrap this up right here. If people want to get in touch with you guys and discuss whatever interesting ideas uh, we were talking about, how can they do that? Again, let's start in alphabetical order with Jamal. So I'm reachable via email. There is an email address for the conference, which is info at netdevconf.org. I occasionally, this only happens at conference time, double on Twitter as well. Srijit? Same for me, info at netdevconf will uh, find me. I'm on the board. I participate in a lot of the discussions. I do monitor Twitter. So if you find me at uh, shrijit2at, I believe is my handle, or shrijit at gmail.com will find me. Uh, and Sumini? Email's fine. Any of the contact methods used here was fine. And finally, Tom? Email is fine. I would also point out that a lot of the work that we talk about is done on NetDev mailing lists and Linux, which is really good to monitor and contribute to. Also, I'm participating in several ITF working groups, so um, I do a lot of work on six-man and inter-area, so um, I may see you there also. And I'm guessing that all of you have some sort of a GitHub account, so we can also find you there, right? That's correct. Yes. So thank you all for taking the time and uh, being with me for this almost an hour. And you've been listening to Software Gone Wild. This was the last podcast in 2019. And in 2020, we already have some interesting plans, but I will not spill the beans today. You'll find it out in a few months. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.